we return um, to consider a little bit more the influence of contemporary cultural context on the tradition, on the evolution of the tradition, on the Dharma, and the shaping of the tradition, and we look at the, the current cultural context, one read, one reading of that, of our current cultural context, the larger cultural context, is that we're in a strange sort of hybrid time, in, in, in a way. So we had the rise of modernism or modernity, if you prefer, with the Western Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and one characteristic of uh, modernism philosophically is the belief, the view, the uh, hope that one humanity can lay hold of the truth, the truth, um, capture it uh, in a, in a clear, uh, unmediated way, a single truth, um, and and that can be known. And so, of course, we talked about the science and the scientific revolution and how that. Um, encapsulated that uh, embodied really the, 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 the central thrust of that belief and idea and hope and uh, of course there were other movements in philosophy etc that, that captured that so the legacy of uh, um, modernism is still is still very much with us it's still very much alive at a certain point, as I chronicled, you know, through the uh, reflections on science and the history of science, through um, philosophical considerations, other factors, political um, and uh, anthropological considerations, etc., uh, looking at studies of other cultures, and there was a kind of rise of a sort of um, collection of related movements that we can loosely bundled together under the term postmodernism um, loosely. Um, and that very much aggressively challenged the, the, the belief and the idea that there could be uh, a, a direct perception of truth, that there is one privileged perspective which reveals the truth or reality, whether it's scientific or philosophical or social or ethical or, or whatever. And so that there was a rise of postmodernism, particularly in intellectual circles, but a lot of that, some of that spilt into non-intellectual non circles, the, 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 the person on the street, the every, everyday person who's not in academia. And so that one read of our contemporary larger cultural context is that we're living in a sort of a mixed time where, to a certain extent, what is still very much dominant um, as the mainstream cultural paradigms is, is essentially modernity, that there is one truth, that science can lay hold of it, um, etc. Et, et Mixed with that is, is a kind of filtering into the common consciousness, if you like, of a kind of postmodern uh, 
reservation, objection, hesitation um, to that proclamation or that idea of, of there being one truth, one reality, one privileged perspective which we can come to or which this person or that person or this culture or that culture has over and above another culture. So these two kind of opposed ideas or opposed sort of views about reality and truth and epistemology and all of that and and, um, and as I said it, it, it covers all kinds of areas of human existence, not just science. Uh, they they kind of coexist in the, in the common consciousness in a strange way, so that there is a, a sort of reluctance to uh, there's a reluctance to close down the possibility of people just having different opinions and different uh, takes on reality or perspectives. At the same time, as there is a kind of dominant. Um, view of this is how reality is and it tends to adhere to the sort of classical scientific materialist view uh, and secular view. So that in itself is, is a sort of strange mix of postmodern philosophy with the, the sort of dominance of, of um, more like modernist views. They mix together. It's a strange combination. And what does that imply? How does that play out in how we uh, view the Dharma, sense the Dharma, what influences will that have on the Dharma, but also on how we view uh, Dharma, etc. So one of, as I I mentioned just now, one of the traits or thrusts of postmodern thought and philosophy is this objection to any claim of uh, reaching or knowing uh, a universal truth, and any uh, claim that there is such a universal truth, or that one can hope to arrive at a perspective which will uh, um, reveal that universal truth. And rather, truths or reality perspectives or worldviews or even morality views, uh, etc., under, uh, under the rubric of postmodern, uh, the postmodern gaze, the gaze of postmodernism, um, view all these so-called truths, uh, all these uh, perspectives, uh, as just uh, so-called truths. Um, they are viewed more as just cultural products. And so one of the sort of uh, constituent or related movements of postmodernism is a kind of um, what we might call post-colonialism. So um, academics and others looking at the influence of um, the aggressive colonialism of uh, Western European countries, but you might also say the US, etc., um, on on indigenous cultures and uh, other cultures around around the world, uh, imposing their views of reality. It's happened in all kinds of ways, imposing aesthetic, imposing reality views, imposing legal views, imposing sociological, economic uh, modes of thinking and uh, action. And wishing to kind of recognize that and uh, recognize that that has gone on and reclaim uh, some of the 
indigenous power from those kind of uh, oppressive uh, oppressive spread uh, through colonialism and so so and that's the part of all that study brought the view that um that there are no universal truths there's just different different cultural views now of course this is not a even among um, modern philosophers this is not a uh, a sort of simple fait accompli there, as, as an argument. There's, there's nuances to this. It's much more sophisticated than I'm, present, than I'm presenting here. However, that objection or nervousness uh, when anyone claims a universal truth, any person or any culture or any religion, etc., is part of the... Um, part of, as I said, a thrust of, of postmodern philosophy that has, that has, to some extent, filtered down into our ordinary culture. So, I heard from a colleague was teaching with um, uh, another teacher, and the colleague of mine uh, played two pieces of music in the meditation hall uh, one evening, and her co-teacher uh, afterwards said, or she should be careful, she shouldn't assume that they will be, uh, those pieces of music will be universally felt the same way by everyone in the hall. So I, um, I think they were by two, two pieces of music uh, by two basically white men. Uh, I think it was George Harrison and Leonard Cohen. And uh, this co- uh, co-teacher was was kind of saying, well, careful of the sort of, they actually use the word, but the kind of uh, colonialism there, of supposing that music by two white men will be heard by everyone with the same, um, it will land in the same place as uh, my colleague was uh, hoping it would to communicate a certain point or create a certain atmosphere, etc. in the hall. Okay, fair enough. Um, Good point, maybe. Um, But at the same time, this co-teacher was uh, probably, my guess, overlooking the presumption of universality in the Dharma. In other words, the Dharma tends to proclaim, and most Dharma folk presume, uh, a universal truth that the Four Noble Truths are universal truths, or certainly that the sort of the pith of the Four Noble Truths, that craving brings suffering and r- releasing craving brings a reduction in suffering, uh, just that much, that is assumed to be a universal truth. And uh, it may or may not, again, be explicitly uh, trumpeted as such, but I, I wonder whether most most Dharma folk, people who are steeped in the Dharma, actually just really assume that. Now, most Buddhists, so-called, I don't think, kind of try to enforce their view or their way on others. They would um, acknowledge and allow uh, any person's freedom and autonomy to a certain extent to choose their path, their religion, their conceptual framework. But maybe, you know, perhaps just like I don't know, say a fundamentalist Christian who is not uh, evangelical uh, might believe 
that those who don't choose Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior will not go to heaven. They might believe that. Um, uh, or that they might even believe this person will, will suffer in hell um, for eternity, I don't know. Um, but without being aggressively evangelist about it, they they won't impose that on others so aggressively. They're still harboring a certain view. I don't know. Is it the case that people who are steeped in Buddhism or consider themselves Buddhists assume, without aggressively foisting it on anyone else, assume that basically those people who choose differently, who don't practice a relinquishment of craving and, and other aspects of the, the Buddhist path, will suffer and do suffer because of their kilesas, because of craving, um, of their personal craving, etc. So, to me, this is an interesting question. It's like, do we assume that Dharma is a universe, is universal, and proclaiming uh, and uh, the, the the holder of of uh, the repository of universal truths, at least some of them? Culturally speaking, you know, there's a good case, I think, to look at Pali Canon uh, Dharma teachings and that whole thrust towards transcendence and solitude and renunciation and uh, with regard to the relationship with senses and the senses and sense pressure and, and regard that as very, um, put it in quotation marks, male um, as, a, as a kind of style that the thrust of um, Pali Canon Dharma is quite male. But that I think that case could be, you know, to a certain extent, very, very validly made. It's certainly a patriarchal, or has been a very patriarchal structure. So one of the, again, related movements within postmodernism is f- feminist studies and, and gender studies and all that. And one can very easily imagine that kind of critique from the perspective of a, a, a feminist thinker looking not just at the patriarchy through uh, a couple of thousand years of Buddhist history um, in its power structures, but also a typically, as I said, male um, flavor and range uh, and leaning in in the archetypal style there uh, of, of its aims and its methods so that to remove oneself from the world, to not be reborn, to transcend the world, to um, regard sense pleasures um, as something to be renounced, etc., to uh, be the emphasis on solitude, all these things. So, you know, how much is a universal truth in there? How, uh, how much... And if we talk about, you know, again, going back to when I talked about different worldviews spawning or setting up different dharmas, the, the view of um, the round of rebirth being equated with suffering and then the release of suffering, liberation, nibbana, is coming out of not being reborn again into the world, into any world. If that is central, 
then we're not just talking about cosmetic differences here. We're talking about something really fundamental. Is that very transcendent movement away from the world, away from sense experience, um, is that something that is you know, created by a male, coloured by males, reinforced by males, and reflecting a male um, uh, style, archetypal style, if you like. The, the, the language is fraught here, so I'm um, certain to um, tread on some toes. I apologize, but I hope you get the basic point I'm trying to make. Several practitioners have told me, I'm, I'm actually not interested in the unfabricated. I care more about relationships and the beauty in, in relationships. Now, a, a, a woman practitioner told me that. And is that just because she's deluded or actually is she holding on to uh, and trying to preserve and create space for something that's actually been sidelined and denigrated over um, o- over many many years and through the force of a kind of male oriented and male shaped um, uh, teaching and thrust so do we assume the Dharma is universal and uh, the repository of universal truths? And if we don't, then then what? Same about soul-making Dharma. You know, do we assume the soul-making conceptual framework is uh, universal? The universal re- reflects some u- universal truth. All these ideas we're putting out. One of the, uh, hopefully, strengths of um, and sophistications of soul-making dharma is that, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the whole idea of breaking of the vessel, shirata kilim, is, is integral to the whole conceptual framework, and also with reference to conceptual frameworks themselves, so that part of the whole conceptual framework of soul-making dharma is the fact that conceptual frameworks need to be stretched, need to be soft and elastic, will shatter at certain points, will have holes in them, will have certain inevitable incoherences that may fracture and may break and may need to be uh, expanded, rebuilt, etc. And sometimes I, I wonder, and I've, um, Catherine and I have touched on it several times, I just wonder how much of soul-making dharma is is a reflection of my personal dispositions, um, my history, my preferences, my blind spots, my views, my style of consciousness, my soul style. Um, even things like the, the emphasis on the kind of fine discernment, um, subtlety uh, of awareness with regard to emotions and energy body, so this is just part of how my soul and my consciousness tends to work or how I've um, developed it, how it has been developed over practice. It's something that, to a huge extent, Catherine shares and um, or has similar kind of tendencies of you know, subtle discernment, etc. How much of that is necessary and how much... Um, 
is, as I say, the, 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 the teachings themselves are actually just a reflection of, of my style and not necessarily necessary. So these are questions. These are questions. What do we do with all this? Um, if we stay with this uh, this strange um, amalgam, uneasy kind of um, incongruent, relatively incongruent amalgam of modernism and postmodernism, modernity and postmodernity in our current contemporary in our uh, contemporary wider culture, one of the other, if you like aspects or faces of postmodernism um, in terms of the arts and someone told me that the whole postmodern movement actually started in architecture I think and in, in, in some of the other arts and a sort of um, introduction of kind of more pastiche elements elements that belong to different artistic styles were placed in, in juxtaposed in the same building or, or piece of artwork etc and so Pastiche, that kind of, um, uh, from a certain perspective, incongruous juxtaposition of different uh, elements and styles and traditions within one piece, that's also kind of characteristic of certainly postmodern art to a certain extent. This is all grossly simplified, but it it doesn't matter for the points I'm making for now. Um... So, with the attack on the idea of uh, a unity of view or unity of style, there was a there is a sort of libera- liberation of the possibility, a legitimization of the possibilities of pastiche, of putting things together in all kinds of different ways, certainly artistically. And so, it's possible, given that kind of permission in some of the wider culture, that a kind of um, eclecticism can creep in um, to, or be consciously injected into dharma or soul-making dharma, etc. Um, but even eclecticism can be, if we just talk about in, in spiritual eclecticism or religious eclecticism, can be uh, can happen in two ways. One can be more in this sense of the pastiche and the other can be eclecticism with the harboring a background or foreground view that actually we can put all these things together we can mix what Jesus was saying with what um, Rumi is saying and what uh, the Buddha is saying or whatever we can put all these pieces together um, because they're in fact all saying the one truth, the one universal truth, the one perennial uh, philosophy, etc. And so that's quite common in some uh, New Age circles, or that view is quite common in some New Age circles, and some um, people who sort of espouse what's so-called perennial philosophy. Um, So this kind of eclecticism would be coming then from a very different place, rather than there is no truth and you can mix things together and don't even attempt for a kind of coherent unity of, of structure. This would be coming from, you can mix things together because they're all in fact saying the same thing. Um, personally, I don't, I, I'm not 
at all sure how uh, people hear um, teachings, the soul making teachings, but I don't consider uh, myself um, a champion of any kind of eclecticism um, of essences. I, uh, I'm so, so I hope that people don't think I'm of the view that spiritual teachings are essentially the same. It's just the expression that different that differs. Um, they're all just different paths to the summit of the same mountain, etc. That that kind of uh, trope that you have probably heard before. My sense, rather, in offering these teachings and exploring these teachings, is um, of so many essential and fundamental differences, even within one tradition, such as insight meditation. It's, it's almost staggering to me like how much like really how many basic differences there are among say the teachers of insight meditation in um, well, even just in in the UK let alone in the states and in Europe etc and on top of that i myself don't believe i have an interpretation of buddha dharma one interpretation or um, my dharma or my version etc I feel more that I have many dharmas, many kinds of uh, larger conceptual frameworks I can move in and out of, partly dependent on who I'm talking to. And they're all kind of um, accessible and, and valid. So when, I mean, not so much in this talk, but in other talks over the years, you know, when I am using diverse examples and artifacts from various traditions... Um, I'm using them, I feel, more in a kind of opportunistic way, if and when they help what I'm trying to communicate. And part of what I want to communicate is my sense of the necessity of plurality, of an open field, or an orchard, a garden, a pardis, to use the Hebrew word, of infinite possibilities of interpretation, of creation and discovery. And that is different, uh, if you like, than uh, eclecticism. It's serving a different point. Well, I don't know how you feel. Um, I wonder how, how you feel about um, when you hear me or another Buddhist teacher or teacher of Buddhism using stories from religious traditions other than Buddhism. So... Um, for example, from the Old Testament, uh, it seems quite rare to hear teachings from the Old Testament um, in Buddha Dharma circles. Uh, but I wonder how that lands. And they're always, um, you know, trying to illustrate. Uh, or open up certain ideas about awakening or the infinity of hermeneutics or the nature of the soul-making dynamic or psychologus dynamic or whatever. So it's much more common, for instance, to hear Jesus and Rumi um, in Buddhist, certainly in insight meditation teachings, um, uh, teaching those, you know, 
Rumi and what's selected from Jesus and Rumi's teachings is teachings about love and selflessness and oneness, etc. Uh, maybe for some people, Old Testament teachings have a, uh, um, a, a remnant of uh, or suspicion that they're full of, you know, pictures of divine wrath and judgment and they're dualistic, etc. But still, I wonder where where that lands. Um, Generally, this drawing on other other cultures and other traditions, and if we stay with this just for a moment, uh, it's interesting. You know, a teacher could use a Buddhist image or icon with a non-Buddhist interpretation. So, I could take some uh, image or story or icon from uh, from Buddhism, whatever it is, and interpret it, say, in terms of oneness, like universal oneness, as if Buddhism was teaching universal oneness, which it isn't, in, in my mind, it's hard to make that case, in, in my mind. Um, or, conversely, one could use a non-Buddhist image, uh, or icon, or story, and give it a Buddhist interpretation. And so, this is this is also, I wonder where those two those two modes sit with you or land. So what, for example, are you identifying with? Are you, am I identifying with being Buddhist? And so do I um, object maybe to certain non-Buddhist images or, or anecdotes or whatever, or language? And if I am identifying with, with being a Buddhist, Why? Or what is going on there for me psychologically? What is it exactly that I am uh, loyal to, that my allegiance is to? Is it to being a Buddhist? Is it to freedom from suffering? Is it to something else? So I, I think that's really, really quite interesting. What's actually going on for us in our identity um, if we are identifying with being Buddhist? And also, which carries more weight when we hear or read it? The concept elucidated or taught with respect to an image uh, or exemplified, the concept exemplified expanded on, or the image. So I was hearing from someone who um, was really uh, practicing for many years in the insight meditation tradition, and then through different circumstances and events, she uh, moved away from the insight meditation and the whole world of Buddha Dharma, and was practicing in another tradition, I'm not sure quite how it would be characterized, but some kind of um, non-dual, non-dualistic sort of uh, kind of Islamic-based tradition. And then uh, she was telling me that she felt drawn to Buddha Dharma again um, and was explaining uh, that because she had, that this draw was because she had felt Kuan Yin calling uh, calling her home to explore some of her presence as a figure in her own right. 
as a presence, uh, as a presence within herself. So this um, reconnection with Buddhism uh, came through through the sense of Kuan Yin. Um, my question is, and I, I don't know what was the case with this person, but my question is really, uh, is it is it just an icon, in this case Kuan Yin, typically conceived and labelled as Buddhist, um, or is it, uh, because if it's just the icon, where is the Buddha Dharma in that? Actually, representations of divinities, they... they Throughout history, they've passed, they've moved, they've been traded, they slip uh, and are shared between one uh, culture and religious tradition and another um, countless, countless times. Countless times. And uh, academics have traced that in all, in all kinds of ways. So just because it's Kuan Yin, and Kuan Yin is regarded as a Buddhist deity, Bodhisattva, etc., does that make it a return to Buddha Dharma? If it's only... Uh, that it's a typically, um, typically Buddhist deity. There's nothing more than that. Just the borrowing of a deity, um, and uh, and a relationship with that deity, perhaps through visualization, perhaps through image, etc. Where's the Buddha Dharma there? You know. Similarly, I heard that when when Christian missionaries went to Tibet, I think it was. Um, pretty sure it must have been Tibet and. Uh, and they uh, started trying to teach the Gospels and teach about Jesus and teach the sort of theology of Christianity, uh, they they actually, in a way, had very little impact and very little influence because the Tibetans heard the stories about Jesus and the beautiful healing stories and his sacrifice and all of that and just, just heard it and said, oh, he's just a bodhisattva that we'd never heard of before. And so... Uh, he was just easily, um, without any friction at all, just accommodated into their already large pantheon of deities and bodhisattvas. And they completely missed the essence of Christianity. Uh, uh, the, the, and, and certainly missed any differentiation between what they were believing and thinking and their conceptual frameworks, explicit and implicit, and the Christian ones. So again, when we talk about traditions and eclecticism and borrowing and uh, referring to all that, what what are we actually talking about? What what actually has the clout? Is it just uh, a kind of um, a representation, or is it is it more the the deeper essential conceptual framework with the with the delineations and things? So there's a lot of considerations um, in here to I think to reflect on. I've made the case before, and I, I, pro- I'm, I get the impression I'm not the only one who, who feels this way, but um, to, to me- in many regards, the, the postmodern movement, philosophically at least, kind of um, reached a dead end, or has come to a dead end, in a certain way. Um, so, partly... It was supposed that in the attack on the any proclamation or hope 
or idea of a universal truth that could be arrived at by adopting uh, you know, the, the perspective that reveals that truth, etc., um, would uh, open up the ground for more fertile cross-pollination and conversation, etc., I don't think that has happened, or it doesn't seem to have happened very much. certainly hasn't happened much in philosophical circles, as far as I can tell. Um, and the whole thing kind of got, well, died to some extent, or we could say, has it has it died? So I mentioned someone, for instance, like Richard Rorty, who made such an insistence in his, his very um, smart critique of uh, truth claims and privileged perspectives on reality and, and all that and um, deconstructions of even the attempt at ontology and epistemology, all, all that stuff and, and and then and then was hoping that this would, in, in his words, open up the conversation, and that was the most important thing, to open up the conversation and keep the conversation going uh, but very little came, certainly in his writings and there's very, there's very little uh, conversation happening, and uh, and it didn't seem to spawn much or open up much of a conversation or much fertile uh, creation and discovery either in terms of ideas or or anything else. And uh, I made this point before, but you know, partly the problem is uh, that a lot of the academic philosophers um, lack any technology in the sense of any meditative technique and capacity and pr- uh, developed practice to actually shift ways of looking, to move in and out of different ways of looking, so that their very sense of reality, the very sense of cosmos, their sense of human being, their perception of things actually changes. And of course, that's the central thing, as I would see it, we practice in, in, in Buddha Dharma, at least as, as I tend to most commonly present it. Um, and that takes practice. So I can have the idea that there are all there are the possibility of different perspectives, but if I can't actually engage different perspectives, it's it just stays completely at the level of um, the written academic word or debate. Nothing is r- really affected in the being, and there's no real exploration of 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 new ground of different perspectives. No real creation and discovery happening. So that's maybe one one reason why the whole postmodern philosophical movement kind of um, just sort of died or petered out, lost its life. Um, a second is, and again I've pointed this out before uh, just recently, is that often many of those philosophers espousing the uh, impossibility of, of seeing truth or arriving at a, 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 or the existence of a, a, a one truth or one, pers- one preferred arriving at one preferred perspective on reality. And most of those philosophers espousing that and claiming that actually had a hidden agenda. And sometimes it might have been hidden to themselves, I don't know. And, and that hidden agenda involved a kind of um, strongly secularist, almost nihilistic um, materialist stance. That was their basic ontological commitment. And on top of that, they might have even had a, an agenda to 
cut down, to denigrate, to make impossible, to bar from the conversation anything that reeked to them of more spiritual views, more ennobling uh, views, uh, other dimensions, divinity, etc., etc. So, saying one thing, but actually blocking the discourse from opening up in certain areas, um, also just they closed the discourse so it it ended up atrophying and nothing really new came into that pot other than people repeating over and over there's the absence of truth that we can't you can't be bashing each other slapping each other's wrists when it seemed like this person or that person was claiming some kind of privileged perspective uh, usually without realising it um now, I'm sure that in recent years and even last couple of decades even, um, I'm sure there must be uh, thinkers and, and burgeoning movements that I'm just unaware of. Someone was talking to me even just the other day about metamodernism and saying that this uh, was, was the beginnings of a philosophical movement that would related something in common with what we were teaching and uh, may provide uh, part of a way forward out of this sort of dead end or uh, lifeless pool left over from from postmodernism and this strange mishmash of the dominant modernism with sort of uh, kind of uh, filtered down postmodernism. So that's very, very possible. Um, I don't know much about it, what metamodernism means. Uh, I don't know much about it yet. But, um, you know, again, if we're we're saying, what do we do with all this? What do we do with our cultural context? What are the effects of the cultural context? And how might we um, look at the Dharma, look at tradition, look at where we've got to, look at where we are and how we move forward in in light of our consideration of, of those contexts, and particularly now our current uh, cultural context. So one, going back to the previous talk on ontology and epistemology, you know, one way forward is, as I, as I mentioned there, is the kind of working towards a an absolute that, if you like, is uh, a truth an independently existent truth existing, if you like, in another dimension or dimension, so to speak, so that from our usual human perspectives, we can only glimpse part of that truth or one angle or one aspect uh, of that that absolute at, at one time. But actually it exists there as something we can kind of work towards or intuit or somehow perhaps even create uh, some kind of some kind of sense of, or open some kind of sense of, whether it's intellectually or meditatively or both or, or whatever. Now, that kind of idea, as I, is, as I uh, mentioned in the talk on ontology and epistemology, is kind of anathema to a lot of um, postmodern, uh, a lot of those thinkers influenced by postmodern philosophy, but not all, and it would provide one way forward, again, that we can then think about the Dharma as, uh, or think about whatever tradition we're talking about, since Buddha Dharma or soul-making tradition, whatever, as as 
aspects, uh, as partial aspects of that greater um, absolute. And, and that can happen in all kinds of ways, all kinds of different levels. But another I've mentioned in the past, another possible way forward out of this dead end is 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 really the idea of practice and uh, dharma as art, uh, rather than as a pursuit of truth, uh, like uh, sciences, rather than as a religion, um, both of which postulate truths, uh, definite universal truths, um, regarding certainly soul-making dharma I would regard as an art and I tend to regard uh, mainstream dharma as an art as well. And again, I've talked about this before, I'm not going to go into it too much right now. But then with art comes the possibility of, if you know, artistic truth, poetic truth, which has power, but not the same kind of truth claim or truth conception, conception of truth, excuse me, as, as say, typically religion does, or typically science does, or typically philosophy or other uh, domains of human inquiry have. And we mentioned in uh, one of the talks recently that perhaps um, the imaginal and sensing the soul needs its own epistemological ca- uh, category. It's a, a third epistemological ca- category that, that not it's not just the the kind of knowledge that we tend to think of that corresponds with some uh, independent objectively existent uh, external truth and neither is it just a belief it's something uh, it's a, it's its third category so that would those kinds of considerations and ideas would be opened up and wrapped up in in the idea of dharma certainly soul making dharma as art there's also then, as in art, there's endless possibilities. So the possibility, even just of like tonal music, the possibilities are endless, they're infinite. Uh, for example, sort of painting, they're, they're actually uh, endless possibilities. Um, but those endless possibilities that are part of the art of um, Dharma, the art of soul-making Dharma, let's say, uh, need to be, as I said before, balanced or offset or form a creative, being creative tension with some kind of constraint and resistance, just as in art. Uh, There's some kind of constraint and resistance, and that's part of what forms the crucible for the creativity and the discovery. So there's this infinite possibilities, and somehow they're given more power, more depth, more transformative potential, etc., by being placed in a crucible whose walls offer some uh, constraint, uh, some limitation, some resistance. So we talked about that in regard to ontology and epistemology. There are other uh, domains uh, of uh, that, that provide resistance and constraint as well. But also, like... Um, are, I would say soul-making dharma itself is, in this sense of endlessness, unfathomable. And it's irreducible as well. 
in, in like like art or like an image is unfathomable and irreducible. The whole of soul making is unfathomable and irreducible. Irreducible in the sense of um, we can't actually say what's it, what is it for? What is this soul making for? Um, its purpose. What's the purpose of soul making? Soul making is the purpose of soul making. So you end up with a kind of circular definition, as all the perhaps deepest things in existence tend to be. It doesn't refer, it doesn't deliver us uh, primarily. Its purpose is not to deliver us to something beyond itself. The purpose of soul-making is soul-making. Soul love soul-making. And so that also has an analogy in art, homology in art. What's the purpose of art? And sometimes when philosophers have historically got their got their set their uh, eyes on on the domain of art and try and uh, come up with aesthetic theories, oftentimes they want to link the art to some moral message or some cognitive idea that we're supposed to understand from the piece of art, um, etc. But I would say that art, yes, it can deliver a specific moral message, yes, it can deliver a certain conceptual message, but it's always going to have areas and depths and breadths that are beyond anything that we can explain or package it as. It's always going to be, perhaps include the moral, but more than moral, and if more than just the moral. And if it does include the moral, it's going to include it in a way just like the imaginal, this di- di- um, what is it? Di- dimensionality shading into divinity. You know, this this uh, region where it feels perhaps like it's making a moral impact on the being. It is making a moral impact on the being, but exactly how and what and why and how that works uh, and what exactly the moral message is, is not so clear, as opposed to a piece of art or, or a part of a piece of art. So it's very clear, this is the moral, uh, this is the moral message that you take from it. So, um, there's a kind of, yeah, there's something irreducible in art, and I'd say there's something irreducible in soul-making. It preserves its own domain beyond and above. Uh, it preserves, uh, let's say, areas of its own scope that are beyond and above the moral, the cognitive, the intellectual, and also the utilitarian in the sense of it helping something else, or even reducing suffering. So all these go with it. We've talked about this before. Yes, the moral, because values are one of the elements of the imaginal. Yes, the decrease in suffering in different ways. Um, Yes, the intellectual component. Um, but in a way, it will always have these beyonds that are um, that deliver and open up, and whose purpose is more than those domains. They're there, but it will always be more. And as such, you say, well, what's the point? What's the use of it? Well, soul making is the use of it. And it just stops there in that in that kind of circular circular uh, 
self-proclamation. If we, um, just again, just linger a little longer with this whole idea of postmodernism, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to point out something like, uh, when you ponder it, there's, you know, one can realize that the very idea so characteristic of postmodernism is, is, is this idea or that the idea that ideas and views come from or emerge from or are constituted by uh, their histor- by historical and cultural con- context. So they're not truths. They're just um, they're conditioned by historical and cultural context. So that's the very typical postmodern sort of um, critique or analysis explanation really about of, of things of ideas and views and worldviews and um, beliefs but one could say or one could point out that the very idea or belief or view that ideas and views come from or emerge from are constituted by historical and cultural context is itself a view idea and belief emerging from a, a, a certain historical and cultural context so what does that do? So hold on. My head's spinning a little bit. Maybe then that idea is not a truth. The idea that ideas are culturally emergent is itself a culturally emergent idea. And again, we can point back to Heidegger and, and uh, others. And that... What does that do? Does that relativize it as a, as a truth? Does it mean that the, that very idea about ideas being culturally conditioned and emergent, contingent, um, may not be ultimately true. And what does that do to our sense of possibilities there? And again, certainly there's um, sometimes uh, there's an agenda, sometimes hidden, sometimes explicit, um, in this idea, in this typically postmodern uh, idea uh, that the ideas and views and beliefs come from uh, a culture, are born from a culture and don't reflect any universal truth or don't represent any movement towards a universal truth. In, uh, in that, what's often expressed as well is, is a, a prohibition on the idea that the cultural conditioning and the cultural context itself represents something like a divine movement or the uh, the the life of the intelligence of the world soul or something like that. So this is a, a definite no-no in, in in the views of those postmodern philosophers. Um, it would it would still retain the idea that ideas are culturally conditioned, but just say the cultural conditioning itself is a reflection of something larger being worked out uh, through humanity through the world soul. Uh, it's a movement of the divine, of the Buddha nature, etc. That idea that then, uh, in a way, sanctifies to a certain extent cultural contexts and movements and influences um, is too reminiscent of, of, of Hegel. The philosopher Hegel, uh, for most contemporary philosophers, and he became, he was enormously influential and then became almost like the uh, focal point of sort of vehement attack and has you know, gone 
massively, massively out of fashion uh, in the last while. But one, one, Hegel had this idea that yes, cult, it's called absolute spirit, that 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 the culture is um, so it's called spirit, that that cultural context and society and religions and philosophies, etc., and art, they're all part of a wider movement of the spirit, an evolution of the spirit. The problem, or one of the problems with Hegel, was that then he decided, or he proclaimed, that uh, this this process of growth of the spirit through, um, through culture, etc., had reached its zenith, its peak, in, in his philosophy itself, which, of course... <laughs> Um, is problematic for a number of reasons, um, but we could have the, we could entertain again neither as a truth nor an untruth, but as a perspective, as a conceptual framework that we're free to move in and out of. We could entertain a very similar idea: the cultural conditioning, the cultural context, a part of a movement of a, a divine movement of the world soul intelligence. However, whatever words we want to use there, but regard it as open ended, as opposed to either having arrived already at 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 its uh, summit, at its peak, at its completion, or as moving towards, in the future, some uh, peak uh, summit when we'll all know when we've arrived there because everything's just uh, perfect and hunky-dory. We could regard that movement, that divine movement, as open-ended, just as we regard the soul-making movement as open-ended. And the awakening that soul-making opens and delivers as open-ended, as endless in its possibilities, endlessly fertile. And still, uh, it's, it's a divine movement. So as I said at the beginning, there's a lot here in, in the pot, a lot here to kind of unearth and shine the light on. And I, I really want to hold back as much as possible, I realise it's not completely possible, hold back from uh, imposing any conclusions that I might tend to make from all this uh, and and just sort of yes, expose these things for your and our consideration. But when we put all these pieces together, as, as we've talked about, and the considerations about history, the considerations about um, cultural context and cultural conditioning and influences uh, both past and present and future and the uh, place of our personal inclinations and our personal desires and soul styles when we put all that together it you know it's possible from all of that I don't know wait where how you're feeling right now but it's possible uh, I would say to conceive or situate soul-making dharma, to write a history in, well, at least two ways uh, regarding its situation vis-à-vis, let's say, mainstream Buddha dharma. So given everything we've said, it's possible to, um, yes, conceive of its place and and write that history, history as fiction, remember, Um, in at least two ways. So one is that the soul soul making is is part of Buddha Dharma. Um, it's and so as such, it's 
Um, it's within the perimeters, within the boundaries, within the scope of what we what we understand of as Buddha Dharma. And certainly, it evolved from Buddha Dharma insight meditation as its basis. It uses a lot of the tools, a lot of the concepts, a lot of the meditative um, tools and techniques and approaches that, are, again, for the way I would um, practice and teach Buddha Dharma, are part of Buddha Dharma. It came very much, as I explained, out of a sort of deep uh, uh, exploration of emptiness. Um, we can, as I have done, again, I think in certain talks, maybe including that What is Awakening and other talks, we can, it's possible to, to kind of rethink or better expand our sense of the Four Noble Truths, expand our sense of what do we mean by suffering and what do we mean by awakening, especially now if, if we cannot uh, assume that everyone believes suffering is just being... Uh, in, on the realm of rebirth from life to life and, and liberation is getting off that wheel of rebirth and not being reborn again. Then the whole notions of suffering and awakening uh, become more open to different interpretations. And it's possible to expand what we mean and, and by, by suffering, as we talked about, well, including the suffering of soullessness um, and the awakening of soul. So I've explained all this at much greater length. But then we're really using the framework of the uh, Four Noble Truths and expanding its range. And certainly uh, there's other elements of Buddha Dharma that we could say um, in soul-making Dharma, they're, they're the same concepts. They're just expanded beyond maybe what many uh, proponents of mainstream Buddha Dharma would would you know put out there? So, for example, um, you know we talk about in the Dharma we talk about dana sila samadhi panya, sila samadhi panya ethics, um, samadhi, meditative absorption, well-being, concentration, etc., and panya wisdom. So you can see that um, when I touched on. Yesterday, the relationship between emptiness and image, that we're really opening up the range of, um, of insight uh, regarding, regarding emptiness and, and its implications. Um, or, for instance, when I mentioned that uh, the truth of Anicca is... Um, perhaps not an ultimate truth, as many Buddhists would, would consider it, um, an ultimate truth, the truth of impermanence, actually expanding the insight and saying, well, actually time is empty too, and all things that exist in time are empty. Um, and so with the emptiness of time, the, the, the door is opened to a perspective of timelessness, eternality. So, it's almost like more insight, if you like, deeper insight widens the range and the scope of what's what's actually possible. Um, so there's panya there. If we talk about samadhi, um, you know, I've talked a lot about, uh, for instance, the fluid back and forth between samadhi states and 
I'm working with an image, the the, the reality of it, or the experience of wherever you are working in meditation there's, there's, uh, with an image. For example, there's a fork. You can go into the samadhi more, you can go into the image more. I've delineated four or five kind of realms or experiences that one can be in with uh, with an image or with the essence of an image, etc. Or the... Um, and so this is this is also extending. So alongside the eight classical jhanas, we can extend the uh, range of what kind of states it's possible to kind of settle into and regard as realms, meditative realms, states of relative um, meditative stability, etc. So again, all the samadhi is there, all the panya is there. It's just it's just stretched a little bit. Uh, if we talk about sila, about ethics, actually, I, I hope that I will be able to um, talk about that um, after this talk. Um, so I would, again, I would urge the view that what's happening in soul-making dharma is actually we're expanding the ethics. We're certainly not getting rid of the ethics. Um, so again, it's uh, our practice based on ethical care and ethical attention but it but it perhaps widens it um, talked about sometimes uh, in talks like medita- meditators revolutionary and necessity of fantasy I think the almost unconscious limitation on our ethical uh, sensibilities and our ethical stands and actions the limitations imposed by a limited range of archetypes that we inherit or the other legacy of um, uh, mainstream Buddha Dharma. And so that's actually, again, uh, the soul-making Dharma might open up the ethical range more because it opens up the range of archetypes uh, through which one can um, sense and tune to the ethics of a situation and then respond as well. So I'm going to elaborate on that in, in the talks uh, to come, I hope. I won't, won't say too much now. Or even dana, you know. So again, we're very much rooted in the, in the, um, in the practice of generosity in all kinds of ways. And I talked about that when we talked about opening the energy body, the importance of that and radical generosity. Um, But it's also possible to say that, um, you know, in soul-making, some of the particular elements of soul-making, dana is implicit, you know, in duty, for example. Duty that, in relation to an image, has to spill out somehow into the world, or somehow, even if it's actually purely intrapsychic, duty in relation to an image, there's some kind of dana, there's some kind of giving of the being that is expressed through that duty somehow. One might also say um, that, that, that regarding dana that the soul is in, intrinsically and naturally generous, that it, it wants to share itself, to display itself, to show um, uh, and, and manifest its gods, its its daemons, to mirror and echo 
infinitely in life. body, in speech, in perception, in mind, in art, in work, in so much, um, it pours itself out endlessly. It wants to impress in that good sense that I was talking about. It wants to connect, it wants to share, soul wants to reach out to soul and impress and be impressed upon. There's a generosity in that. You know, you could say soul serves itself, but from another perspective, soul is more than me, or uh, certainly more than ego. It's um, always at least tied uh, or tending to the social and, and, and the community. The earthy and the cosmic, the hidden worlds as well. It serves all of that. In its service and devotion to soul making, it serves all of that. It doesn't, again, because of the uh, intrinsic tendency to expand, it expands into all these domains as well. So there's all kinds of... Um, directions, aspects, levels, um, uh, dimensions of, of generosity wrapped up in, in, in soul-making dharma. The one view was is, is that the soul-making soul dharma is, is just within the scope of Buddha dharma. It's just one sub-tradition, much as Vajrayana is, or insight meditation is, or, or whatever, uh, within Buddha dharma. And really what's happening is we're just expanding the range of what we mean by dana, sila, samadhi, pani without, without letting go of any of what we already meant by dana, sila, samadhi, pani. We're just expanding it. But a second way of, of writing a story or seeing it, situating it, conceiving of it is that actually Buddha Dharma is in soul making. It's a part of soul making. So why? How could we say that? Um, because soul styles and soul desires, as we said and emphasized, um, they uh, direct and determine what kind of dharma I want. Because what kind of world I want to sense myself in, what kind of vision and sense of humanity, what kind of liberation, what kind of flavor of being. And so the soul star, whether it's conscious or not, the soul wishes um, to feed in to determining the Dharma. And again, we could regard that as a movement of the world soul in a more, more of a global sense, if you like. So that Dharma itself is an expression of soul, of soul making. And as such, it's a dynamic, evolving, moving, volatile, and multi-faced multi-aspected, multi-directional um, uh, movement of soul-making. So one view is soul-making dharma is within the Buddha dharma, and another view uh, is the dharma is in soul-making. Buddha dharma is a movement of soul. Was, is, will be a movement of soul. It, it's conjured forth from soul. It's built by soul. It's shaped and um, determined 
by the desires and the movements and the inclinations and the processes of soul making. So we could look at it two ways. Um, somewhere before, I can't remember, I, uh, and it was probably in the context in the context of saying something else, but I, I think I said, actually you could see it three ways. You could make a claim that um, soul-making dharma is um, well within the scope of traditional Buddha dharma, and maybe even stretch it and claim that's kind of the Buddha did teach soul-making dharma, etc. So you get that, that's very typical in religious innovation is to claim it, uh, the innovation, paint it as an original teaching. So then you get the stories of the Vajrayana was proclaimed by the Buddha, um, by Siddhartha Gautama in his lifetime, but just to a secret set of disciples, um, or just in secret to a select set of disciples, for example. It's always been there, and then it was only revealed gradually over time similar with Mahayana, etc. So there's a painting of something, again, to do with fantasy of origins, it's to do with the way religions think backwards to the founder and the truth being behind me, a truth that I'm trying to replicate. But one could paint it that way, as a a first option. One could um, perceive soul-making dharma that way. One could perceive it um, as completely having broken out of the bounds of Buddha Dharma, and being something else. A vessel has shattered, it's open, and now it's outside of the perimeter. Or, a third way, one could regard soul-making Dharma as part of the current expansion of Buddha Dharma in the, in the West. The current birth, actually, of Buddha Dharma in the West. Buddha Dharma very young in the West. And that we are involved, and not just people are involved in soul-making Dharma, all of us, anyone, are involved in that kind of meeting of cultures. Just as when the Buddha Dharma went to Japan or China or Tibet, and it met with um, indigenous cultures, the cultures and religious thought and conceptions that have been there for a, a, a long time, and sensibilities and styles of being and soul styles. And it had to kind of marry the two, and it did. So that Japanese Zen... Um, uh, much of it is, is grossly different than, say, Tibetan um, uh, Buddhism or Theravadan Buddhism, etc. Uh, it's taken on. It had to. Uh, it had to be expanded and shaped in the context of that meeting of cultures. So that would be a third way of, of regarding uh, a third story of uh, about soul-making dharma in its relationship to traditional dharma. No, actually, we're, we're part of that expansion is happening right now. So uh, that movement of the Buddha Dharma meeting Western culture at this time, and we're in that process, and that's where soul making Dharma sits as one of the um, discovery, creations, fermentations, explorations of that meeting. So there's three options there, and I think. I pointed out whenever I mentioned this before that, you know, and then of those three options, which do you prefer? How, how would you like to see this? And how much, again, is it just a kind of archetypal uh, or, or soul style that determines the story that we or you tell yourself? 
In other words, do you want to see yourself as a renegade revolutionary, breaking out, starting something new? Do you want to see yourself as a midwife, a part of the, the gentle care of birthing new life uh, and, and new growth? Or do you want to see yourself as uh, loyal and traditional within within already established range of what's already agreed upon as this is Buddha Dharma? And maybe where I, which story I choose depends on soul style. So, I don't know how you feel now. Uh, maybe that's just a few a few too many groundlessnesses in there for you, I don't know, with all this reflection and all this, uh, what we've sort of exposed in, in the pot. How does this land with you? And if there's two ways of spinning a story, soul-making, Dharma is in Buddha Dharma, or the Dharma is in soul-making, Buddha Dharma is in, in, in the soul, and in, in, is part of soul-making, might that also be uh, a version or an instance of what Lee Smolin was uh, what I quoted about the hypothesis of duality like two very different ways of looking at the same thing and they seem completely incongruent but they are merely two ways of looking at the same thing it's a part of Buddha Dharma the Buddha Dharma is a part of soul making So I don't know how this lands with you. I don't know if it agitates you, makes you nervous, makes you angry, makes you concerned, if it excites you, if it just baffles you or perplexes you, if it depresses you. I, I wonder whether part of um, opening to all this and, and reckoning with it and um, acknowledging it, it, it that, that doing so, opening opening to it, recognizing it, acknowledging it, pondering it, is actually part of um, a kind of psychological maturity, a kind of spiritual maturity of soul. That to ignore all these um, considerations that I've uh, touched on would be a little immature. It's like oh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to acknowledge that. I don't want to think about it. It's a bit too much. Maybe looking at what we've got here, admitting this mix and the uh, complexity of that, and the nebulousness of it, and to a certain extent the groundlessness of it. Maybe that's an ask, uh, psychologically and and spiritually, and for the soul. And to be able to do that, and to be willing to do that. Um, is is asking for a kind of maturity of soul. And what um, is it possible to open to all this and um, assimilate it, digest it, relate to it in in a way that's actually uh, fertile, soul making, helpful, beautiful, expansive. I can't remember who, but some someone, probably more than once, asked me, why why is soul-making dharma so complicated? Um, and you've got all this stuff going on, all these words, and, um, and so, <laughs> I don't know, it's a good question. Um, I'll, say, I'll say a few things in relation to that. Um, 
partly um, because uh, not just to explain but to, to, to support and to justify what is other than our culture's dominant, taken for granted and habitual default views um, n- needs uh, a kind of it's difficult to do that. It's a complex movement. Owen Barfield has um, has this metaphor. Of, you know, when you the movements a hand makes when you untie a shoelace are actually very complicated movements. But the resulting state is actually relatively simple. When when the sh- when the two sides of the shoelace are untied, it's it's simpler that state than than a kind of knot. Um, So it may be that untying, if you like, recognizing, exposing, untying a lot of the sort of very ingrained assumptions, perspectives, uh, conclusions and views that we have typically because we live in this culture at this time and because we've uh, been saturated in Buddha Dharma. It may be that doing that actually is, like untying the shoe, actually needs quite a complicated movement. But then things are a bit more open. Second, uh, perhaps, reason why it's also complicated, or why it seems so complicated, is just the fact that logos and intellect, as we've pointed out, are part of the soul-making dynamic. They're part of um, soul-making, and they're part of the eurosychologos dynamic. So we said the soul wants and needs complexity, not only simplicity. Yes, the soul wants simplicity at times for different reasons. It wants it a kind of spiritual simplicity, and it also wants a simplicity sometimes when it's overwhelmed with dukkha. But it doesn't only and always want simplicity. It also wants complexity, interesting, uh, fecund terrain, um, and material, and challenges. And we've pointed out in the soul-making dynamic, soul itself will will complicate, complexify, um, as well as it simplifies at times. And the movement towards the unfabricated, there's a, a progressive simplifying, you could say, simpler than anything we usually consider simple. Simpler even than oneness. But, at, but the soul also wants um, complexity and working with images and sensing with soul tends to complexify, tends to add more and more faces, aspects, dimensions, etc. Both of those movements are part of soul-making. So the imaginal complexification and imaginal practice in general is is only a part of the larger um, potential range of soul-making, which involves both, which can involve both the movement to simplification, simplifications, and the, 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 the movement to complexity. And the soul wants both. The soul is hungry, infinitely hungry, infinitely thirsty. Third possible reason why things are complicated um, is that I, I think um, we need a kind of sophisticated and robust philosophical framework, conceptual framework, ontology, epistemology, psychology, um, because... Because a lot of what we're talking about will be quite alien and quite um, 
uh, even shocking perhaps to um, many people who hear it, many Dharma people who hear it, many others who hear it. Um, and so will has and will receive uh, criticism, ridicule, dismissal, um, when it's by some people who are very influenced by the sort of or attached to mainstream views and beliefs. And so it needs to kind of the surety and stability and robustness of a, a more sophisticated um, philosophical and conceptual framework and, and psychology. And that all that means uh, more complexity, more detail, more going into things at, at a deeper level, more bringing in other elements that may not may not seem may seem uh, you know to draw on a wider range than, than usual in, in our considerations. We could say more as well. You know, the fact that if if we're going to say that stretching of conceptual frameworks or breaking of um, not just conceptual frameworks but per- perceptions and heart heart ranges and all kinds of things, um, exper- you know, ranges of experience. If that kind of breaking of vessels is an inevitable part of uh, either either gentle stretching. Or um, or breaking, shattering of vessels to be then built again in an expanded way, shattered again. If that whole movement or cyclic spiraling growth of breaking vessels, stretching and breaking vessels, is an inevitable part of soul life and soul growth, soul movement, then actually we need a conceptual framework and uh, a logos that includes. Um, includes and accommodates the possibility of, of breaking of the vessels in its very idea, as I said before. And and that is wide in its possibilities. So if you just make a Dharma that fits uh, that, that becomes a vessel and then and then something in the soul it pushes out and expands through that, um, the vessel was too small. So the vessel has to be wide and so there's more in it. And so that more in it can also be a little overwhelming or, or complex sounding to some people. But it may be, you know, for for some people, it may be, or, or, or rather put it this way, sometimes people say to me, uh, soul-making dharma, it's, it's what the world needs now. It's exactly what we need in this time of crisis. And it's the, almost as if it's the one thing that's going to save humanity. Um, I, I would be much more humble, I think, in in uh, an assessment and say it's it's one possibility. Soul making dharma is one possible dharma for our times. It does seem to me to have the strengths, the assets that it does include the personal, the particular. It does not just dismiss the self or reify the self, but offer a, 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 an infinitely expanded range of possible self-expression, self-theatres, self-explorations, etc. Um, it uh, has the, I think, advantage of not being a kind of uh, realist framework or realist uh, philosophy, which 
is problematic for all the reasons that I've um, laid out over over recent years and in, even in this set of talks, um, that it's more, let's say, congruent with a lot of developments in um, thinking about science and philosophy um, from recent years. That it allows um, and promotes, uh, um, again, as, as a kind of uh, integral and inevitable part of its movement, it allows us to sense the world with soul, to sense the earth with soul, to sense each other with soul. And the reverence and the, um, sen- the, rever- the sense of divinity, dimensionality, reverence, beauty, humility, care, eros, beauty, and that uh, come with that. So we see, we sense the earth that way. We sense each other that way. We sense ourselves that way. And uh, that a framework that uh, both of ideas but also of meditative um, art that supports that. You know, again, you could say well, that's a real, uh, it's a really helpful thing at this time. It's a really important possibility at this time. And in that, it allows a much deeper, uh, potentially much deeper. Care. It gives ground and ongoing support and uh, range to the kinds of care we have for, for the earth, for each other, for ourselves, including um, a way we can think about activism and engagement as, as part of that. Of course there are other ways, but, but within, within the soul-making dharma, it seems to me to offer all that. It also recognizes um, the importance, as I mentioned in this talk, of the choices about anthropology and cosmology and recognizing recognizes how much those visions or views of um, what is a human being or what is the cosmos how is the cosmos what kind of cosmos do we live in uh, that that will affect what kind of dharma we 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 have what kind of um, sense of this is the tradition this is the path and this is the goal so recognizing that it, the um, central basic influence and import of anthropology and cosmology on on the vision of the Dharma, the sense, the scope of the Dharma, the version of the Dharma and awakening. Recognizing that and actually accommodating all that. So we can we can not insist on this kind of anthropology, that kind of cosmology. Actually we can um, accommodate more coherently, more integrally integrally all these different Views. We understand where they come from. There's a soul need for this or for that view. And it will spawn this or that direction, this or that sense of the path, this or that sense of the goal. Rather than kind of assuming that we're all talking about the same thing just because we're using um, vocab in un- unclear and not very well-defined ways. Um, we recognize, acknowledge, accommodate and explore the diversity in in a larger range of whole conceptions of the Dharma. So all that can fit in too. But yeah, in response to those people, uh, actually they're not not that many, but I don't know, um, who, who's, why so complicated and seem, you know, are attracted to soul-making Dharma teachings but struggle a little bit. 
um, say it's too much, it's too complex, there's too many possibilities for practice, there's, there's too many new words and ideas. Um, <clears throat> I have to say that some of it, uh, I don't know if I would have put it out there um, at such a rate um, over the last four years, uh, were it not for my um, health situation and having, you know, obviously a very, uh, very difficult prognosis and the possibility of dying at any time. It felt important to me to get the material out. I didn't want to feel like I died without without trying to put that out there. And um, there's no need to digest it all at once. You know, hopefully these teachings are there for a while and they're there and you can return to them and you can pace yourself um, you know the other extreme reaction would be to to, to throw it all one extreme would be I need to I need to eat all this now I need to digest it and understand it right now and, and kind of over consume or consume at a pace that your not just your mind but also your heart and your soul and your life um, and your relationships cannot accommodate that pace at which you're consuming these teachings. So that would be one extreme. Another extreme was, would be just to throw it all out because uh, one's maybe attached to simplicity, for example. But a middle way would be, you know, take your time. Again, it's so much a matter of um, responsiveness, attunement, care, listening, attentive sort of calibration of your soul and your soul's needs and how, you know, how, how's it landing, how's it going, how is the assimilation. Um, but, you know, culturally, again, I would say we need at this point um, something, other options rather than just the dichotomy, the, the sort of split between sort of rampant consumerism and, and greed and craving on the one hand and a sort of oversimplistic view of desire. That desire, unless it's desire for compassion and liberation from suffering, is basically bad and, and not trustworthy. So that whole, um, again, third possibility or middle ground or more complex, more nuanced exploration of eros, of desire and the psychology and the, the, the soul um, aspects and dimensions and considerations of that, that's also necessary. So all that's in the mix for, for some of you who are wondering. Okay, let's stop.